0: Today is the 26th, right? Okay. Today is April the 26th, 2011. And we're going to have Friday night at the movies. With um, It's going to be Temple Grandin. Garth, you need to see this movie. I know you will like it. Have you ever seen it or heard of it? Yeah, you will really like this movie. Out of everybody here, you probably appreciate it more than anybody. Don't give it away. Thank you, sir. And remember that this Sunday will be Communion Sunday, so if you haven't signed up, you can do so. And the guys that are going to the to Kevin's getaway outing for the barbecue and so forth is going to be... It's, uh, it, it's real easy to get to. We're going to probably carpool for people who want to go. And it's it's closer than Waco. About the same as going to Austin. But it's out in the middle of nowhere. Yep. But it's on 36, kind of. <laughs> Is it what? No, it's Kevin's. <laughs> yes. Yes, I got the map. That's how I, I can see the map in my mind, but no one else knows, and I can't explain it, so we'll wait till we get the map. Okay, yeah, he's probably over there close to Buckholz, close to Buckholz yes, which is probably about the size of Greenvine. Okay, let's, let's get ready for our study of the Word of God this evening. Uh, can't wait to teach it. I hope that you're ready to hear it, so let's prepare ourselves few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, thank you for another day of your grace. Thank you for your provision, your protection. Thank you for your mighty word. We pray that you will help us to focus so that your word will have a mighty work in our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I just have one quick thing to say before we get started. The kooks are coming out from under the rocks still. I have a, something that came right around Easter time from the Houston Chronicle. This was dated April 15, 2011. It says the title of this, Pluralism Gives Christians Insight to God, Theologists Say. Well, anyway, this is the first line. Buddhists may not believe in the God of the three faiths of Abraham, but that doesn't mean a Christian or a person of any faith couldn't also practice Buddhism, says theologian Paul Kittner. Now, you know what he's talking about, the three faiths of Abraham. That's offensive to me right off the bat, because Abraham only had one faith, and that was in Elohim, that was Jehovah, That was the Lord Jesus Christ. And it wasn't the Abraham, I mean, excuse me, uh, Ishmael, which is the one that the Arabs say that really is the offspring of note from Abraham. (coughs) And it wasn't the faith of the Jews uh, that we have today. For the most part, the Jews are unbelievers and they have a faith, but it's not in the faith that Abraham had. Because when we hear about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all believers in the gospel. And for the most part, Jews have rejected the gospel. Uh, Nitner, a Catholic and a professor at the Union Theological Seminary in New York, said that he found a deeper understanding of his own belief in God through Buddhism. He said, uh, the scholar and author, he has written 14 books. He will visit Houston this weekend for a lecture series titled, Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. And, well, it's just a bunch of claptrap. One other real quick thing here. He says, uh, pluralism, I don't know if you're familiar with pluralism, pluralism, It's something that maybe the postmodernists would buy into. He says pluralism is a valid Christian model, though it's something new, Nittner said. It teaches that there is one God working differently in many different religions, and that all religions are called to dialogue and learn together. You know, the closest I have seen. In the Bible, to religions come uh, to have dialogue, are called to dialogue, is when Christ said, Come, let us reason together. Reason together is not the same as dialogue. Dialogue usually has little, if anything, to do with reason. You have your opinion, I have my opinion, and let's dialogue about that. Well, the problem is that. There is only one way to God the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. It does not detour and go through Muhammad or Buddha or Zoroaster or anybody else. And so that did not get my blood up as much as I thought it may because this is just so wacko. It's Most people, this is a Unitarian type idea. Unitarians believe, just come and worship with us. Well, who are we going to worship? Well, it doesn't matter. We just need to worship. That kind of idea. Well, we're out of that nonsense now. Let's get to our Scripture. We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, and we are just about done with this particular Scripture. Maybe one little thing to note, and then we're on to the next verse. 2 Thessalonians <coughs> Chapter 2, verse 14. And it was for this He called you through our gospel, the this is following, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You weren't only called to be saved. You weren't called in order to... Uh, follow an example and out moral your neighbor. We are called to be servants of God. We are called to grow in grace and knowledge and be conformed to the image of God's Son. And the most staggering of all of that is that we are called to gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? It's just, it just staggers the imagination. The only thing that I'm going to add to what I've already said here is that God treats us the way we do not treat things that we love. Now, let me illustrate what I'm talking about. It may even bother you sometimes. When you have something, it, it might not be a something, it might be, a, um, well, it could be a, a, a dog, it could be a car, it could be a real nice lounge chair or a wash machine and these things may have been faithful over decades and you have used them appreciated them maybe even loved them to a degree and we can we can love things but finally when they reach their end what do we do usually we discard them even uh, it's kind of a silly thing you can have a car that was very good car you can have a car that you kind of identified with and is like your friend because it was so faithful and you could trust it. And you just, and sometimes there has been times, probably you can remember in your experience, that a car was very necessary, not just for transportation, but you really depended on it. You might be up in the mountains somewhere and it gets really cold. And if you didn't get in your car and it start, the heater of work and all that, you might be in big-time trouble. Well, but what do, happens to cars? What happens to dogs, animals? What happens? They, they wear out. And I just traded in my old faithful, my car. had 150,000 miles on it right there about. And I don't know. I just felt kind of funny when I walked away from it. Just left it in a, in a dealer's lot stripped everything out of it that was of that value, something that we would have, turned my back on it, and walked away. And there's just something about that that just doesn't hardly feel right. I mean, something that has been faithful and you reward it with trashing it, uh, just just discarding it because you're moving on to something else. I'm saying all this so that you will understand God is not like that. God will take a faithful servant. And rather than discard it, I've got my use out of you. I don't need you anymore. Uh, You can just go into the Netherlands, wherever that may be. Uh, It's not that way. He rewards us for just being faithful. He rewards us for doing what we're supposed to do anyway. But by the way, I think that's a good example for us to treat our children in that same way. When children do what they are supposed to do, there are some parents that say, well, they don't need a reward. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. Well, is that God's example? What does God do with us when we do what we're supposed to do? He rewards us. And rather, when we get to the end of our life, and for it's different ages, different ways for different people, but our bodies wear out, as we get older, our memory starts to fade and our vision starts to fade. We're not sharp as we used to be. Uh, we, can't do, we can't carry the load of service that maybe we did when we were younger. And we're, In other words, we're getting less and less valuable in that sense as far as God is concerned. But He always treats us in grace. He always gives us what we don't deserve and when we're actually at the end of our road, if we're wore out and can't, we don't really have that much that we can contribute anymore. This verse says that we can gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's part of God's plan. Now, isn't that something that we have a God like that? If you understood other religions such as Islam, Love is not a big factor with Allah. It's more of if he's in a good mood, maybe he will not turn me into toast. But if he's in a bad mood, he might just wipe me out, my, my whole neighborhood. There is no unconditional, everlasting love. They don't have that. They don't even understand what it means. The only way that you can know that you're going to get on his good side it's if, if you die in jihad, if you are a terrorist and you go in and you uh, murder a, a number of innocent people, men, women, and children possibly, that's the only way you can know for sure that you're going to get on his side, on, I mean, on his good side. I don't think that's a, a, a banner that I would like to hold over any god, would you? So when we look at this, And we see that it's in God's plan. In fact, if you go to the first part of this verse in verse 14, and it was for this that He called you through our gospel. See, a lot of people think that we were called in order to share eternity with God. And that's the only reason. Well, it is true that we are called for that reason. But it's not the only reason. And so this gives our lives purpose and we are inspired that God is that loving a God that He wants us to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more you know about the Lord Jesus Christ, the more you understand His glory and the more you understand the magnitude of this last part of this verse. So before I moved on to verse 15, I just wanted to throw that out there for us to have a greater appreciation for God. It doesn't matter if we're worn out. It doesn't matter what our condition is. In fact, probably the more faithful you are, the more you are a faithful servant, the more you're going to be wore out, the more you're going to, in human terms, be less valuable. But in God's economy, those are the ones that are more valuable. So, on to verse 15. Here's verse 15. I'll put it on the board if you want to follow it. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. We start out with the first phrase, so then, brethren. Now, this could be translated then or therefore because it connects what has just been said with what is about to be said. So when it says... So then, brethren, it's saying, based on what he has just given us, and he's calling them brethren again, that that endearing term, and they are believers, you could say with this in mind. It could be translated with this in mind. Then he's going to move on to something that he wants them to focus on. With everything that he's just said, with this in mind, now he's going to make the statement. We have two words in the English here, stand firm. In the Greek, it's one word. It's uh, steko, S-T-E-K-O. It's a verb, and it's the present active imperative. Y'all, I hope you all are getting familiar with my code. The V means a verb, P, present, A is active and active voice, and M is for... The imperative mood. Just think of the M as a mandate. See, I can't put an I there because then it would be the indicative mood. And though the imperative, so I put M for a a mandate. That's one way to remember it. So this one word means to stand firm. So we're going to look at some scriptures with regards to this command. And there's a lot for us to learn in the, uh, there's several verses here that we can benefit from. The first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Now, if you want to turn in your Bibles as we go to this, because I have several things in brackets that might help aid the understanding of these verses. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, sometimes I break into the middle of the verse to... to Keep the continuity there of what I'm, the, the subject matter. <clears throat> Be on the alert. Now you notice, when you see Pam, that's not a woman's name. That's the same thing that you see here. It's the present active imperative. Now the present tense means keep on being alert. The active voice means that you're the one that has to do it. No one else can be alert for you. You have to be alert for yourself. And the M stands for the imperative mood. This is a command. You are commanded to be on the alert. Then it also says, stand firm. Again, a present active imperative. Keep on standing firm. And then it says in the faith, stand firm. In the faith, another command. And then it says, act like men. And we we see this a little different here. This is the present middle imperative. Now, we we don't want to get silly about this. You ladies, it doesn't mean that you're to act like men, that you're to swagger about and spit out of the side of your mouth and adjust everything around everywhere. That's not what it's talking about. It's... Acting like men in the context of this is to be courageous. Don't be uh, vacillating. Nothing willy-nilly in your purpose. You are to be strong. All this is in this verse. And the middle voice means that it's reflexive. It means that you're going to be benefited or at least affected by what you do. So if you are on the alert, standing firm in the faith, and acting like men, you're going to be benefiting from this. We don't have a middle voice in the English, but there is one in the Greek. And then it said look at this last. See, we have four four very quick commands. Nothing in between. In the Greek it's even more concise. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and then be strong. And notice this last one. This is the the grammar of this last word is is unusual. Be strong. It's in the present passive imperative. Now, isn't that something? The every one of them are in the present tense means this is this needs to be ongoing. This is something you keep on doing. You just don't get you you just don't be on the alert on Sundays or when you're at, at church. You're to stand firm in the faith. You continue to do that. You're to continue to act like men. And you're to continue to be strong. But in the being strong, it's a command, but it's in the passive voice. You know what the passive voice means? You don't do it. You receive it. Isn't that something? It's kind of like be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a present. Passive imperative. Now, how do you obey a command where you're not doing anything? It's not telling you to do something. It's telling you to receive something. And you're commanded to receive it, and you're commanded to keep on receiving it. Now, most of you already put the pieces together here. How is the only way that we can be strong in the devil's world? There's only one way for us to be strong, and I already gave it away, and that is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can't do anything. You can't be on the alert. You can't stand firm in the faith. You can't act like men. And you cannot be strong apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit empowering you to do all these things. And you don't have to put ash on your forehead. You don't have to uh, light candles or do any kind of penance. The way that you obey this command is simply acknowledging your sins to God and you receive something. And you don't you don't receive forgiveness which means you are empowered now by the Holy Spirit cuz you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't even you don't even receive that on the basis of anything that you do. You can say, well, acknowledging your sin is something. Well, it's nothing that, that takes merit. It's all because of grace. So be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. The only way that we can do any of that, the only way that we can be strong, actually is not, let me expand on that just a little bit. It's not only just being filled with the Holy Spirit, a baby believer can understand that when he acknowledges his sins, when he confesses his sins to God, that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and now you're operating on God's power. But if you don't have any knowledge, you're you're a baby believer and you don't really know what God would require of you. You don't know what you're supposed to do. You can't operate under that power for very long because you don't have any, any direction. You don't know what you're supposed to do. So it's the empowering of the Holy Spirit plus knowing the Word of God that is going to make you strong. Make. Let me put it this way. Being filled with the Holy Spirit gives you the opportunity to be strong. It's imperative. You can't be strong without it. But it's something that you receive. And you got. you have to use that filling for the Holy Spirit to empower you to understand the spiritual phenomenon of the Word of God. Okay, the next one is Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. You can turn to that one. Philippians 1, 27. These are not any particular order. There's just a lot of data in the Bible that deals with standing firm. Philippians 1, 27. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what I have here in brackets, as you see, That would mean as a member of the royal family of God. We are aristocrats, spiritually speaking, in a positional sense because we are children of the Most High. We are in Christ. We are intimately identified with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And our behavior is to reflect that. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. Now, Paul is writing a letter and he's saying, It doesn't matter whether I come to see you or remain absent, I want to hear from you that you are standing firm. The pr- standing firm there is a the present, active, indicative, meaning that you continue to stand firm. You're going to be the one doing it. Indicative mood means it's going to be reality, not just a potential that you are standing firm in one spirit. The spirit would be one of unity and cooperation with one another. You could say in a spirit of harmony. With one mind. Actually, this this should be translated one soul. One suke, as one man. And what it means is, we as a local body local church should be all in working with cooperation and unity as if we are one man as if we are one person we're many people but we should be this is saying that we should be with of one mind or one soul just uh, doing what we do as a single person Striving together, and what I have noted here, we should strive with one another, not against one another. Striving together for a common purpose. So we're striving together for the faith of the gospel. And this means the body of truth emphasizing grace. And in the middle of this verse you see it. We are, to, we are to be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, the body of truth, emphasizing grace. And I would submit to you that there's no other way to do it. There's no other way that we can stand firm as a church body apart from being in one spirit with one mind, as if, as if we're one person striving together with one another for the faith of the gospel, that would be standing united, emphasizing the grace of God. The church is most like it, much like an athletic team, it requires a joint effort. Everyone pulling together to fulfill the mission of glorifying our Lord by what we think, what we say, and what we do. Believers are commanded to stand firm for the faith, and they do so because they are obedient and because they believe in the promises of God. Believing and standing firm go hand in hand. We stand by our faith in God. In other words, I think that I'm going to have time to get to the ways that we are not to stand firm. We can have wrong motivations. We can do it the wrong way. But the right way, the reason that we stand firm for the faith is because we want to be obedient to God, and these are in the uh, imperative mood. God commands us to stand firm. That's one reason we do it. But I think the main reason we do it is because we believe the promises of God. He says if you stand firm, if you are united in one spirit, you're acting as one man, and you are have a common goal of glorifying the Lord, then there's th- what goes with that? What did we start out talking about? God is going to reward us. There's an incentive there for us to do this. Okay, let's go to Romans chapter 11, verse 20 through 21. Romans 11, verse 20. Sometimes the translations of the Bible surprise me. This sounds like it has a British tone to it. Quite right. It starts out, quite right. (laughs) I can't hardly see see that, but anyway, quite right. They were right in this. Quite right. They, now what this is talking about is the Jews. It's just talking about the Jews. These branches were uh, tore off and new branches were grafted in. The original branches were the Jews. The branches that are grafted in are the Gentiles. And that's what this is talking about. So it says, quite right, they, the Jews, were broken off for their unbelief. This is the fifth cycle of discipline. God endured all of their griping and all of their complaining and their disbelief for so long. He warned them. He gave them everything He could. Finally, they were dispersed in 70 A.D., and that was the fifth cycle of discipline, and they stayed dispersed, not as a nation, for nearly 2,000 years. They were broken off for their unbelief, fifth cycle of discipline, But you, and in what this is talking about, the Gentiles, he's comparing the Jews with regards to the Gentiles now. They didn't cut it. They messed up big time. And so now he's dealing with the Gentiles. He says, so you, Gentiles, stand by your faith. And this stand is a perfect active indicative. Now, perfect tenses always should get your attention because it could have used an aorist tense here, which isn't a point of time. But the difference between an aorist and a perfect is an aorist is really nondescript. It's just telling you that something happened. But when a perfect tense is used, it means that it has ongoing results. Whatever this is talking about, standing by your faith is a perfect tense. You have to do it, indicative mood. Stand by your faith or standing by your faith has the result of ongoing benefit. So this is not only a command. It's saying when you stand by your faith, perfect tense, you're going to have ongoing benefits right into the future and into the present. So he's telling these Gentiles, stand by your faith, perfect tense, and there's going to be ongoing results. Then he says, do not be conceited. See, the Gentiles could strut about and think, look, at silly Jews. They didn't get it. Look at us. Now, we're the branches. And we are really something. Look, God is dealing with us now. He cast aside the Jews. So this is really a warning. He's saying, do not be conceited. He's talking to the Gentiles now. But fear. Isn't that something? And this is in the, I didn't put it here, but this is in the imperative mood. He's commanding them not to be afraid. It's not in the sense of being afraid or frightened. It's to have the proper respect. It's because of God's grace that they were grafted in. When I say they, I'm talking about us. I think everyone here would be considered Gentiles, or let's put it this way, not Jews, at least racially. And so it's saying, but fear, command, have respect. Then it gives a purpose clause here. For if God did not spare the natural branches, which were the Jews, He will not spare you either. And the you is referring... The Gentiles. So he is commanding Gentiles with a perfect active indicative to stand by your faith. Don't dis. See, that's what happened to the Jews. They got arrogant. They quit listening to God. They were no longer grace oriented. And the next thing you know, they were torn off and other branches were grafted in. Okay, Second Corinthians chapter one verse twenty-four. I don't know why I have verse twenty-four. Actually, we're going to go to verse twenty-three because right after this one, I have verse uh, Second Corinthians chapter one verse twenty-three and twenty-four. So we're going to actually uh, start start with verse twenty-three. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But I, and of course this is Paul who wrote, was writing to the Corinthians, call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, and what he was talking about sparing them. See, he's, he's rebuking them here. He said to spare you, and what means there is embarrassment. I did not come again to Corinth. And the reason he didn't go, because if he was going to go to Corinth, he was going to use his authority to straighten out some folks. And so he's saying, you can ask God as my witness that I I spared you the embarrassment and did not come to Corinth to straighten you out. That's the connotation of verse 23. And now he's explaining something else here nor that we lord it over your faith. Now, what lording it over someone's faith in this context, he was talking about either apostles or pastors, those that have the the communicating gift and it carries authority with it. He's saying not that we lord it over your faith. Apostles and pastors are not dictators. They present doctrinal principles but cannot or should not try to force compliance. And so he said, I didn't come to Corinth because if I did, I'd have to straighten you out face to face to spare you that embarrassment. But he's saying that we are not trying to lord it over you to be, be superior, to, have, to be like a, a doctrinal dictator, but are workers with you for your joy. Now look at this. Apostles and pastors work by communicating Bible doctrine. Joy comes from responding to doctrine, not submitting to a dictator. This is what you understand what he's saying here. He said, We didn't come to lord it over you. We're, we're not doctrinal dictators. But we are workers with you for your joy. And a, a pastor or apostle, their, jo- their job is to communicate doctrine. And what he's saying here is when a a pastor or an apostle, when they are communicating and the people are responding, then it's going to be joy. So he says, but we are workers with you for your joy. So they are communicating doctrine, and joy comes from responding to doctrine, not submitting to a dictator. Then it continues. It says, for in, actually means for by your faith, And in context, it means your faith and doctrine, you are standing firm. And the standing there, as you will see, is another perfect tense. Perfect active indicative. So when you stand firm for the faith, you're not, no one, I don't think I don't know if anybody does this, just but just to make sure to clear the air in this church, and this would be the same for any church. No one should try to live the Christian life in order to please the pastor. Nor should they submit to what they're supposed to do because the doctor, the the pastor, is a dictator, and he's going to have his clipboard, and he's going to show up and. He's going to analyze everything about you and try to coerce you into living a doctrinal life. That's not what what he's saying there. We're not coming there to embarrass you. If we did come, we'd have to straighten you out because there were people who were uh, off base and that was part of their responsibility. But he said, we're not going to lord it over you. All we're going to do is work with you for your joy. And the way they work... Is communicating the word. The doctrine is presented. The free will must be engaged. And when it is engaged, then they're submitting to the doctrine. The pastor doesn't have anything to do it, do about it. The pastor is just a mouthpiece. He's just a like an old rusty pipe bringing the the wonderful water. And have you ever gone to a park? I remember when I was a little boy, they had a park, and it was. We, as kids, we were running. We never thought about bringing any water or anything. And there was this old, oh, ancient uh, fountain they had there. And when we got so tired and thirsty, we'd run over there and turn that valve on. It was all rusty and everything. But boy, the water that came out of there was wonderful. Well, it not about the fountain. It's about the water. That's what he's trying to get across. He says, if we're working with you, so that you can respond to to the doctrines, submitting to the doctrine because this is what we are supposed to do, not the pastor. For in your faith, in your doctrine, you are standing firm. You decide whether you're going to submit to the doctrine or not, but those who are for in your faith, and the object there would be in the doctrine, you are standing firm. Perfect, active, indicative, and you understand the ramifications of the perfect tense. Here's one that has to do with prayer. Prayer from other believers are certainly helpful in standing for faith. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring. That's a participle, and that's a, a perfect middle participle. Learning earnestly, excuse me, laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. We should be praying for each other that when we are tested, when we are confronted, that we will be able to stand firm. We're all, we're all obliged to do so. And we are all to do it, but not in a combative way. We are to do it in love. I said that this this last part, uh, this participle is a perfect middle middle voice. Uh, excuse me, I mean present middle. It's a present middle. Yeah, We are to keep on laboring and it's to our own benefit to do that. Putting on the full armor of God helps us to stand firm against the wishes of the devil, the wiles of the devil. Uh, Ephesians six eleven. put on the full, full armor of God so that you will be able to Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We haven't done everything to be able to stand firm unless we put on the full armor of God. Again, we go to Ephesians 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the devil, uh, excuse me, resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. We are to stand firm for the grace of God and not lured into any form of legalism. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10b and verse 11b. Here's the way it sounds. The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ. This sounds like what we just saw in verse 14, isn't it? called to His glory, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the aorist active imperative. We are commanded to stand firm in the grace of God. Stay out of legalism. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Through whom, referring to Christ, also we have obtained perfect active indicative. indicative y'all need to turn to this one. Because there are some brackets here that you need to note in your Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. By the way, Romans chapter 5 is a. Woo! Muy importante. That's where you have your retroactive positional truth. One of the places, it's in Romans 6, but it's also in Romans 5. You can get a gist of that there. Yeah, Romans chapter 5, verse uh, 1 and 2. Did I say Peter? Oh, no. No, uh, Romans 5, verse uh, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom that would be Christ. Also, we have obtained... see. uh, Perfect active indicative means it's in the past tense. It's already taken place. And this obtaining is in the indicative mood. It's reality and the results go on forever. We have obtained our introduction. This means access to God the Father by faith at salvation. When we believed in Jesus Christ, then we were essentially introduced or we had access to God the Father and that faith was the faith at salvation into this grace, look at this, in which we stand. And we have here another perfect active indicative. Standing firm for the faith has ongoing results all the way into eternity. We have to do it active voice in indicative mood. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We should exult, we should anticipate God allowing us to share the glory of God, uh, the glory of Christ. Are you all ready to press on? Okay. Galatians 5.1 It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, present active, indi- uh, present active imperative, and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery, which would be legalism. Focusing on the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who could return at any time, listen to this, is a motivating force that helps us to stand firm. If Jesus Christ could come before this weekend, wouldn't that inspire you to to take a stand? Philippians chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, and what what is in context here, you can jot this verse down. The last few verses of Philippians chapter 3 is talking about anticipating Jesus Christ coming at the rapture. He said, whom I long to see my joy, my crown in this way, anticipating the rapture, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved." present active imperative again and anticipating Christ's return at any time is a motivating force to do that okay 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1 is the last one i have in the scriptures and it says now i make known to you brethren the gospel which i preached to you which you, which also you received in which also you stand perfect active, indicative. So you see the Bible has, and, and I this isn't a full comprehensive overall study of standing firm, but you can see there's a lot that the Bible has to say about standing firm and all these are in the indicative mood. Let me hasten to say, you cannot stand firm for anything if you don't know what you're talking about. And God expects us to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us at any time to anyone. That means we have to keep on percolating, getting our doctrine. Now, I am just has time probably to start this, but this is um, the wrong way to stand firm. There's a right way and a wrong way to stand firm. There's a right motivation and a wrong motivation. Number one, Using or flaunting your superior knowledge of Bible doctrine in order to lord it over others. That is a no, no. We don't learn doctrine so that we can strut about and feel superior to people who are ignorant of doctrine. That's arrogance. It's pompous. Totally wrong motivation. And if you continue to do it, God is going to get you. He's going to get you and take you to the woodshed. You don't want to go there i got two points under this. A, this is a manifestation of power lust. It is a huge turn off to others that drives other, others away from truth and grace. Nobody likes a know-it-all, do we? And when someone something about the Bible, some issue comes up or the conversation goes in that direction, the worst thing you can do is try to... Try to show off. Trot out all your Bible knowledge of people. You know what you are when you do that? And what I do if I do that? Uh, Like a clanging cymbal. You know, a cymbal has its place. There are certain musical pieces that, man, when it's time for that cymbal, bam, it's just wonderful. It sounds great. But that's the only time. You start whacking away at cymbals, and it's not going to be too many bangs before somebody starts getting... Put out. And that's what we are like. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Without love, you're like a, a clanging cymbal. That is a big nuisance. So it's a manifestation of power lust. You're trying to lower it over people and it turns them off. Uh, B, this is kind of a long one, but I, I put some thought in this one. Arguing with unbelievers over non-essentials is one of the worst things you can do. Who cares if they hunt Easter eggs, dress up like Santa Claus, or go or treating What does it matter if they are drunkards or teetotalers? And I don't know if that's the way you spell teetotalers, but it's as close as I can get. So don't worry about the spelling. I want you to get the jest. Some people, there are some unbelievers that uh, a lot of them go, even go to church. And they're very moral. And they will brag about they would never have demon rum touch their lips. And some of them may be drunk. It doesn't matter. Whether they tithe or don't tithe. Go to church or stay home and watch cartoons. Whether they have been sprinkled or dunked. So what if women insist on wearing a head covering or refuse to wear pants? That is, to church. You know, the dress. Um, just thought I'd care about that. <laughs> kind of loses its power when I stop like that. I didn't. This has got a flow to it. So what if they allegedly speak in tongues or claim that they can supernaturally heal the sick? Whatever they believe about homosexuals, abortion, gun control, or politics does not matter. These people are on their way to hell and the only spiritual thing they can understand is the gospel thanks to the Holy Spirit's ministry of common grace. You can win an argument and lose a soul. And it's tempting. I don't know how many times I've seen people, I've even had people come up to me and brag about how they outwitted the Jehovah Witnesses and how they they were able to to uh, win a conversation with regards to their wacky ideas. Actually, it wasn't a conversation, it was a debate. So what if they... Think that they won't salute the flag and they think if you... They've got a lot of wacko ideas. So what? Who cares? They're on the way to hell. And why would you want to argue any of these things? Because the only thing they can understand, the only thing that the Holy Spirit is going to be able to use when you're talking about spiritual things is the gospel. That's what common grace is. He will act as a human spirit that they don't have because they're spiritually dead. And, it's, and, and I see people do it all the time. They'll be talking to somebody, and the first thing that happens is they'll trot out, "Who I speak in tongues? Hallelujah, praise the Lord!" And they might do it right on the spot. Hallelujah, like ba mm 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 good. I don't know what they say, but so what? We don't care about that. We stick like a laser right to the gospel. If I give any advice to anybody on witnessing, talking to these people, stick with the gospel, whatever they say, and they'll try to lure you into other areas. And I've done it before. I've talked to Jehovah Witness elders before. And they, what do you, they start getting you know, on. I say, hey, wait a minute. I only care about one thing. Let's talk about being saved. You don't want to talk to, about going to heaven necessarily, especially with Mormons because the a big debate. You Nobody know, goes to heaven. Just, just say about being saved. What do you have to be... What do you, what, how, do you, how, are, how is a person saved? Stick with that. The other doesn't matter. Don't argue with them about anything. Just give them the gospel. Okay, so that uh, A is... It's a manifestation of power lust. See, especially uh, flaunting your superior knowledge, you can do that with other believers. And if they believe something different than you do, so what? Let it go. I don't care if another believer tithes or not. Am I going to get in a big argument with some believer about tithing? And then we, we start talking about other, we, ha- we would be able to talk about other issues and maybe have a rapport and develop a relationship. No, by golly, you ain't supposed to tithe. And what's happened? Brick wall goes up. Let it go. Who cares? You have to be able to, to distinguish between the essentials and non-essentials. The grace of God is an essential, especially when talking when we're talking about faith alone in Christ alone. That's what we say, because that's keeping it at where it's supposed to be. I'll just introduce this. Like I, I wish I could get into this because this is really. Uh, i got a lot of good examples here, scriptures to go to to underscore this. Arguing with unbelievers, oh, this is one I just had, and that's not what I'm talking about. Here we go, right here. Making a stand on non-essentials. So one of the things you do is to argue with them, see over here, about non-essentials and making a stand on non-essentials. Similar, but there is some, something different. We'll just have time for this one, th- one point here. Anytime a believer makes a big deal out of a non-essential, he makes the non-essential the issue and obscures the real issue. Anytime a believer makes a big deal out of a non-essential, he makes the non-essential the issue, and obscures the real important issue. It's not our job as Christians to point out every minor doctrinal error in other believers. God did not appoint us to be doctrinal dictators, nor does He expect us to correct everyone's thinking, everyone else's thinking, that is His job, not our job. More and more, what I see as being so important is discernment. You learn the doctrines. That's great. You have to learn the, the theological, the, the systematic theology, and you're you able to connect these dots, and that's a wonderful thing. But you have to have discernment. And you don't want to use your knowledge as a lever that's going to separate you from people It's not necessary. You don't have to. Oh, I'm going (laughs) to stop. This is something we all need. You know, we all have probably one area that we excel in with regards to our doctrinal apprehension of things more than anything else. We probably all have one particular area that we can wax eloquent on. And when we find someone that is actually willing to listen, we like to go there. And if we find someone that doesn't happen to agree with that particular doctrine that we are so eloquent on, we are tempted to smash them with our eloquence. I dare you. You disagree with me? You just wait. Wait till I get through with you. And that does no good whatsoever. Especially when it's non essentials. Well, I'm completely out of time. And we'll continue this next time. Let's close. Father, we're so thankful that you're a God of mercy and grace and you are exceedingly patient with us. Most of us are slow to learn and quick to speak. And we're so proud of what we know and it's so little. What we need is more love and more discernment. We are to stand firm. We have to knowledge, we have to have knowledge to do so. But knowledge can puff up. We need humility and discernment. So we pray that you will help us to consider these things, look at ourselves and make the proper adjustments. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.